Welcome to another episode of Residentially Speaking, a podcast dedicated to bringing you interesting and informative content from key builders, dealers, thought leaders, and influencers across the residential construction industry. I'm your host, Alan Hubble. Bill Smithers, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Alan. Happy to be here. Great. You know, it's so great you could join us as our first builder guest. I think about your experience and position in the industry. You know, you've had obviously a long career, but also quite broad in that you've worked for national builders. You've started your own company involved with a custom home building industry and obviously the CBUSA thing, which we'll talk about in a minute. And I know from our work with you in CBUSA that I know you value continuous learning, sharing of best practices in any number of areas, right? Financial, construction, building science. And then finally, when I was on your website, I noticed one of your headings, your, your titles was building a better way of doing business. And I just got to tell you, that is so perfectly aligned with what we're trying to do with the education hub. It, it jumped off the page at me. It's exactly what we're trying to do with the hub. So again, we're just so pleased to have you join us uh, for this podcast. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. The, um, our, our role in the marketplace, obviously we're involved in, uh, in a lot of different things, but my background, both on the production side and as the owner of a custom building operation, is really geared towards and, and centered around us running our businesses better. That's Bill Smithers, CEO of CBUSA, a network of hundreds of premier custom and independent home builders across the U.S. With more than 30 years experience in residential construction, Bill began his building career at Ryland Homes, where he worked in all phases of division operations and after seven years, rose to become division president, the youngest executive officer in the company. In 1995, Bill left Ryland to start University Homes, a high-end custom home building company, which was named Builder of the Year in 2003 by the Custom Builders Council of Northern Virginia. And in 2006, Bill was chosen by Builder Magazine as one of the 50 most influential people in home building. Bill joins me today to discuss from the perspective of a builder, his real-world experiences in learning and applying building science to the homes he's built, and how he's used building science to resolve or prevent building performance problems. We'll also talk about the state of building science in the residential construction industry and why it's critical to meeting today's challenges. And as always, we'll finish with a short quiz you won't want to miss. Residentially speaking, that's coming up. So with that, let's get started. So um, for, those folk, for those folks uh, who may not know you, can you give us, give us a, a background, you know, give us your background to talk a little bit about how you got into the business and, and how long you've been and, and kind of what you've, what you've done. Sure. Um, as you mentioned, I do have a building experience both in the custom world and in the production world. Um, I started with Ryland Homes and this goes way back, so 1985. And I worked my way through the company. I was with them for 10 years and was a division president when I left and uh, ran, ran an operation, pretty good size operation right outside of uh, Metro DC, uh, did about 500 units a year and then made the transition to the custom world when I started my own uh, building company in Virginia, a company called University Homes. That, that company is still in existence. I really don't do anything in the company today. But, uh, but it is still uh, building a few homes a year. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting because, uh, you know, I think as, as you and I have talked over the years, the experiences that I took with me from the production world uh, really kind of colored the, the background for CBUSA itself. 
And uh, as, as I moved into my own business and realized that the buying power that I had with Ryland quickly went away once I started my own operation. And clearly, it was a different uh, different type of product and different type of customer. But uh, you know, knowing what things could cost and how how a process driven uh, and systems driven organization could run, those were kind of things in the back of my mind in my building company and onto CBUSA. Sure. So why uh, why construction? What got you into construction in the first place? You know, why, were you, those, why were you so fortunate to end up in construction? I guess uh, you know, I, it's it's uh, I came from a family of lawyers who uh, who were definitely not very handy. So I think I, I uh, got the skills from my grandfather, who was very handy. Yeah, but I, I worked construction when I was in college and just found it very logical and easy. I do, uh, I do draw. I'm not an architect, but I, I do draw. I did most of the homes that we built for university. So oh, wow. as I said, it was the business side of, of uh, the building industry paired with the, uh, you know, what we did in creating awesome homes for people that really, it, you know, it always is a very natural fit for me. Huh, that's great. I didn't know you had that, uh, that skill set. That's awesome. What, um, over the years, you've, I'm sure you've been involved in a number of organizations in the industry. What are some of those that you've, boards you've sat on or councils or input that you've given to the industry? Sure. We, you know, we, we've done a lot of work with NAHB over the years. And uh, in particular, the Builder 20 Club program was something that was very important. I actually wasn't as involved with the HBA when I was at Ryland. Hmm. You know, we were very focused on our own corporate structure and, and whatnot. When I went out on my own, uh, I found the HBA to be a good resource and particularly a group within our local HBA called the Custom Builders Council. Um, but, you know, through NAHB's Builder 20 Club program, I met amazing builders from all over the country. And the focus of that, that whole initiative and, and still is today is to help good companies run their businesses better. And uh, we became, uh, my partner and I joined a Builder 20 Club uh, right around 2000, 2001. And uh, companies like us from other markets around the country got together twice a year, shared best demonstrated practices, uh, really got into each other's businesses, shared our financials. And we learned very quickly that even though we, we thought we were doing a good job in running our company, there was a lot more to learn. Sure. And uh, as, as, things started progressing with our local custom builders council and the work we were doing on what we called at that point, the co-op, which was uh, the first shot at collective buying. That was something I shared with my builder 20 club repeatedly. And at every meeting, these folks that were in this group were like, wow, can you help us do that in our market? So, you know, I, I got the idea to take what we were doing at the local level and turn it into a business. Okay. We actually involved the HBA in that initially. We made them a shareholder in the company. And, uh, you know, a group of us got some investors together. And uh, we started taking the, the CBUSA concept to other markets. Okay. So that was the beginning of, I mean, that was the, the seed for CBUSA. Yeah, it was. I mean, we, we knew that, I mean, we were, we were all good builders. We were paying our bills on time. We thought we were being responsible customers, and yet we were paying a premium in the marketplace just because we were, we were small. I mean, we, didn't, we lacked any, uh, any type of scale or, or footprint and really didn't have a lot of alternatives until we started working together. And it's that, you know, it's that together mentality and the, uh, the, the network structure 
that was really the foundation for CBUSA as we began to, uh, to grow to markets around the country. So if you had to describe CBUSA, how would you describe it to somebody who may not be aware of it or know exactly what it is? You know, the, the, the technical term that is used in the market is a GPO, a group purchasing organization. And GPOs are prevalent in pretty much every industry. They were not very prevalent in the residential construction space. And essentially, we bring together good business owners that, that can align around a shared vision of improving their position in the marketplace. A big part of that is in buying better because of uh, the combined volume that we have. But uh, the sharing of best demonstrated practices. Uh, we've created a very strong community within CBUSA and really separating ourselves from, from the pack and allowing independents to effectively compete with much bigger uh, regional and national builders when it comes to procuring the things that go into our homes. And how many, I mean, you have a lot of members. I know you're in the hundreds. Is that right? We do. We have, uh, we have today 540 builders that are Part of CBUSA, we have about 1,200 vendors uh, that are also uh, part of the group and 13 national manufacturers that are partners of ours at some level. Yeah, so that's great. And our, our, our approach is, um, is a little bit different than some GPOs in that we do set up operations on a city-by-city -city basis. So we'll take, I mean, Northern Virginia, where I live, uh, our group here has 33 builders uh, that are members of CBUSA. We meet monthly. We talk about a lot of issues, uh, most of which are centered around uh, buying and what we can do together. So our approach is we uh, target a new city or someone from a city comes to us is to bring together the best of the best in that market to, uh, to help us do what we do better. You know, key component of our business model is we do have rebates that are involved, but rebates at the local level are based on, on uh, builders paying their bills on time, which is, you know, everyone says, well, sure, of course, everyone should do that. But as an industry, we're not really good at doing not that. Not always easy, right? And, uh, and we made it uh, a key component of our business model that our that we don't get paid locally unless our uh, vendors, trades, and suppliers at the local level get paid on time. So we kind of we're not we're not a fit for everybody in the market, mm -hmm. and that's why we think that we've got uh, the ability to say we really are the best of the best. We're the we're the ones that run our business as well and build great homes. Yep. So 550 builders across how many MSAs? We we're in uh, 33 markets oh, wow. uh, today. Okay. I knew uh, you when. I think it was 13 when we, yeah. back in the day when we first uh, developed yeah, our relationship. You know, to put that in, uh, in uh, relative terms to big builders, it's about 11,000 home starts a year. Uh, we have builders that are as small as two or three home starts a year and ones that are uh, approaching 300 and wow. virtually everything in between. So if you look at us collectively, and that is how we represent ourselves in the market, we would be the seventh largest builder in the U.S. That's amazing. On, uh, based yeah. on last year's volume. That is, I mean, you really do, in that respect, you kind of fly under the radar because radar, you're so, you're kind of dispersed and fragmented. We are. And, you know, we're in general, we're a difficult group for particularly manufacturers to get to. 
Yeah. You know, if someone's building 10 or 15 homes, it's hard to, it's hard for them to create a value proposition that's one-on-one for that customer. But when we can bring those folks together and structure programs and, and agreements that everyone can participate in, and then the deliverable comes essentially from the group, not just from one member of the group, it uh, becomes really valuable for, uh, for the folks that we buy from. Yeah. So who was your first member? Was it you? And where was it? The, uh, the first group that we had was Northern Virginia. And as I said, it was a spinoff from what was our Home Builders Association. Yeah. But we'd already gotten kicked out of the HBA because we were making money. You know, <laughs> we were collecting rebates on, on purchases of lumber. Now, I, I will say we were collecting those rebates on paper. You know, the, the systems building led us to see that we actually weren't getting all that money. But nonetheless, we were, uh, we were profitable. So we could not be a not-for-profit. So we spun ourselves off locally as an LLC huh. and still worked. We were all members of the HBA and supported the HBA events. But it was, uh, it was kind of an interesting transition uh, out of the association and onto our own, our own platform. Hmm. And that's about the time that we were looking to potentially expand. But, you know, we told the group, look, this is not a volunteer effort. Everything we did locally was volunteer. And uh, that, that, you know, for us to take this concept and to help other builders and other markets do what we do and really to, to build this as a business was a full-time venture, which uh, that's why I started CBUSA. And we included the HBA as part of that. And it was interesting as we looked to expand Many of the folks that were in my Builder 20 Club uh, were, were companies that we talked to about helping us get a group together in their city. And your largest builder today is what, a few hundred, 400 homes, maybe three, four? Uh, they'll do, I think for, for this year, they are projected to do just about 300 homes. Okay. And, so, yeah. Uh, this, this particular builder is now in a couple of markets and they build. Uh, I, I would I would say that they are you know they're closer to custom than they are to production and in the way they go to market they're very much custom they'll let yeah. folks do pretty much whatever they want but they have great systems and and great plans and a great team and they keep growing and continue to support everything that we're doing yeah that's great that's it's such an interesting group because a uh, you know two two builds a year and yeah. those are huge homes, many dollars, right? They're, they're high, high sales price, I'm sure. And then the guy doing 300 homes, which are not, probably not million dollar homes. So depending on the market, they could be, I guess. Yeah, that's um, interesting. I mean, as, as, we, uh, as we transitioned to the, the national stage and started working directly with manufacturers, this was around 2010, as we were all starting to, you know, peek over the headlights and say there might be light at the end of the tunnel for the downturn. Uh, I mean, that, that was a big part of what we needed to do with manufacturers and have them understand it wasn't about how many homes we started. It's about what we built, because for us, a start could be a, a 2,500 square foot home. It could be a 25,000 square foot home and everything in between. So yeah. we, uh, we did a lot of work to make sure for manufacturers, we could quantify what the opportunity was that uh, some of our higher end builders. I mean, they'll put more product in one of their big homes than, than a production builder will put in a small subdivision. Right. Right. So it's, I think that's about the time that we joined right around 2010. 
with, yep. I, I want to say it was Corey and Susan Kenny, right? Is that a name? Yes. That, uh, rings Correct. Well? Yeah. Susan was a, our national account manager. And I think she helped get us involved with you uh, on the Corian side, which I think now it's just, it's progressed to Tyvek, evolved to right. Tyvek. Corian is not involved so much. Um, yeah. It's been a long time. Yeah, it's been yeah, great, great relationship. As, as you know, from our many conversations, uh, we are, and I in particular, I'm a huge believer in, in y'all's product and, and why it works and why it's the, the best uh, alternative out there. So it was good partnership. So let's, um, let's pivot a little bit to today. Um, your members today, I'm sure like many builders are struggling with, you know, pricing is a challenge, right? Prices are going up on many, many items, uh, in some cases quite quickly. Um, lumber is the most obvious example. I'm sure there's many others. So one, just confirm your builders are, or members are seeing that. And then what are they doing? You know, I've heard folks are, um, you know, putting escalation clauses into contracts or they're just building spec homes. They're not committing to a, a particular product. Uh, they wait till the end so they, they know what their cost is and what their price could be. Um, what are your members doing? Uh, yeah, I think to, I mean, to manage you know, all that. Both of those things are occurring. We do have builders that build spec so they can uh, they can price it later in the process. And um, and certainly escalation clauses. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion within the network about the use of those. Many of them already had those, but e even when you have one, it's a difficult discussion with a customer. And I think that uh, the, it's, it's, as bad as the pricing issues have been, and as rapidly as pricing has escalated, it's also been pretty well documented in the, uh, in the media. Yeah. So customers aren't, aren't taken aback as much when, when a builder says, look, I'm going to start working on this home for you, and I'm not going to buy lumber for four months. I don't, I don't know what it's going to cost in four months, so I need an escalator you know, for these things that I can't control. Yeah. So that's a, so I'm that's sure that's, a piece of it. Yeah, I'm sure that's challenging and it's challenging at the end for appraisal. Well, and new construction. Yeah. For, for your loan, loan to value ratio and all that kind of stuff. Right. And, and, and you know, there, there's, there's certainly limits uh, on any of that, but the, the majority of our builders tend to be in the, the middle part of the market and up. We do okay. have some that are operating in, uh, in lower price ranges, but you know, you can't say that, appraisals and whatnot are not an issue because they always are if someone's uh, borrowing money. But nonetheless, it's that there is a little bit more elasticity there. So, you know, the biggest thing that, that, that we do, and I mean, as a GPO, our job is to help maximize what our group can, can do in the marketplace in terms of awarding business to companies that are the most aggressive in trying to earn that business and to, and to protect ourselves from pricing increases. So we have, uh, we have at the local level, we do something, it's pretty simple. It's called committed purchasing. And this is primarily in commodity categories like lumber, where we will bring the group together. If there are 15 or 20 builders in a particular market, we'll get a projection from them as to what they believe they're going to start over the next six months. Uh, we have different tools we use to quantify what the material is going to be for those purchases. We roll it all together into one very large bid package and we put it out to the market and our, our vendors bid on that at a unit cost level. And it's a, it's a winner take all program that, you know, it sounds very, you know, very harsh and, you know, wow, that's, you know, that's what the national guys do. Well, the national guys do that, but ours is very much a rules-based program. And, 
uh, vendors understand what they're doing. They're trying to help us remain competitive. And, uh, and we do, um, if, if it's a six month buy, we always have true ups built into the pricing. So if the market escalates like it has, well, in 60 days, we're going to take a price increase. And another 60 days goes by, we're going to take another price increase. But it helps us to, uh, to, to get pricing that is comparable to what a national builder would get and essentially share the risk in the marketplace with, with the vendors. So that, those programs alone and commodities have helped to soften the blow of this, this, this unprecedented run-up in, uh, in pricing. And, and our guys know that when it starts going the other way, that we're going to be slower to go down than maybe you know, the one-off sale here and there. But you know, they, yeah. they've got the ability now uh, with our help to see the big picture and why us honoring our commitments in the marketplace is really the only way to do business. How about availability? I mean, if I'm a, if I'm a custom home builder, uh, you know, building just a few a year, you're probably not so concerned with cycle times like maybe the production guys are. So is it fair to say it's easier to maybe manage some of those long lead time items, order them earlier in the process, and you have time for that all to work itself out? And then, so maybe the guys in the middle that build 20 to a hundred homes, I don't know, are they, are they kind of getting caught because they're starting to push cycle times and getting yeah, caught I mean, with it, it, issues? Everybody's kind of in that same box right now. And again, it's, it's, it's well known. I mean, we continue to work with, uh, whether it's our local supplier partners or manufacturers on uh, helping to educate our network on the need for longer lead times and, and get your orders in early. But we, we've had product shortages like everyone else has, has had in specific categories. Uh, we do have in a lot of our national agreements, uh, we've structured most favored nation status uh, with, with those manufacturers. So when there is uh, allocation or a product available, availability issue, we do tend to get pushed to the top of the list like the, like the top 20 builders would. But you know, when the product just isn't available, that, uh, that doesn't help. But you know, our, our approach has been and will continue to be with all of our partners that, look, it's a cyclical business. We're going to go through some pain. We're going to do everything we can do to, to share in our part of that pain. And then we're going to get through it. And we're going to, you know, we're going to get back to a more normal cycle of business. But it's, you know, it's been scary for a lot of folks. Challenging. Yeah. So let's, let's talk building science a little bit. Obviously, we're, this podcast is, is uh, you know, folks can access it from our education hub, which is all about a lot of building science. So just that term itself, I've, as I've talked to builders, you know, sometimes their eyes glaze over, they roll their eyes, they building science is kind of seen as, um, you know, it's diff, can be difficult to understand many different interpretations as from your perspective as a builder, what is your reaction when you hear the term <laughs> building science and you got to yeah, be truthful, you got to be honest here. Uh, it's, it's, it, it's a great question. Cause my, you know, my perspective on building science has evolved. I mean, intuitively, I, you know, I know what, what that means, but when there is substance and structure behind it, it really starts to, uh, to, to make sense. And, you know, even though I ran a very big profit center for Ryland, it was, it was more in your face when I was running a, a small custom company where you're very close to the customer. You are very close to the construction process. You, you have full ownership of anything that goes right and anything that goes wrong in that process. So, 
the need and the desire for for us as builders to to really do what we do as well as we possibly can is there. And you know, frankly, I think it's what part of what separates good builders from great builders is, you know, those that are, that are saying, yes, I really want to understand how there's a better way to do what I do. Cause it's always changing. It's always changing. Yeah. It's and evolved, you, yeah. you guys have been very helpful for uh, not just me, but for our entire network and explaining the nuances of that and, and, and truly putting some perspective around what building science actually is. One of the things that we see, interested in your comment on this, especially dealing with some of the large builders, um, you know, the person making the decision on the materials, sometimes even the methods, right? But the materials isn't necessarily the same person um, responsible for the the cleanup if there's a problem, right? The quality issues or or mitigation, and and then maybe like as a division president, uh, you know, uh, leading that division, that person may not, it may not show up on their cost center and their their profit objective either and that's always a tough as a manufacturer that's a tough um that's a tough uh connect to make between all those players to want to maybe pay more for a premium product premium method premium support so that you avoid future problems but the person you're trying to make that sale to doesn't ever see those numbers even if something does go wrong right yeah that's you know, we, we we deal with that too even though our our uh, members are typically not those gigantic organizations but we'll be dealing with not the owner of the company someone that's in the purchasing department and their job is to you know get things down to a certain number mm-hmm. and our our approach is is really not varied from the get go i mean we we continue to use um, it, it's a term i got from my good friend tony callahan uh, uh, total cost of ownership. And it, it, it really means something, particularly when, you know, it's, it's your company and it's your name on the, on the door, that that total cost of ownership is not just some gimmick to say, I want to make more money on the product or the house. It's that, look, yes, I know this premium product costs more, but it's worth it. And here's why. And that's why this, you know, this education process that, that you all have been involved in and other manufacturer partners who've been involved in is just so critical to our sector of the industry and really, really the whole industry. Because what you tell us, we turn around and tell our customers and, and you know, they expect us to be the experts. They're buying their dream home from us and they expect us to know everything about every component that's going into that home. And when our partners, our manufacturing partners and our supply partners help educate us on why, why they, they are promoting certain products and why these are going to perform better. That's just such valuable information uh, for us. And I do know that, that there is that disconnect in, the, in the, the big production world. You know, I, I would always encourage folks to, to go back to what I said, total cost of ownership, because it doesn't matter which end of the spectrum you look at from the product specification to completion of warranty, total cost of ownership touches all of those. Yeah, yeah. And at the end of the day, it's what's on the bottom line is, uh, is the profit center manager and you then have ownership of that P&L. And when stuff goes sideways, it's usually not on a small scale. Right, that's right. So um, how have you, over the course of your career, you mentioned you've evolved maybe in your understanding of building science. Uh, where and how have you 
picked up your learnings? Where have you sought out classes specifically? And what, what would be your guidance to either, you know, builders getting into the, into the industry or those already uh, in the industry? Yeah, I think, you know, there are, um, there, there, the good thing is the, 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 the breadbasket of resources just keeps growing. And there, you know, if people really want to, to get education on products, it's available for them. But, you know, we, we encourage our group to use their peers. That's part of why we meet at the local level with the members of our group on a monthly basis. We, we focus on purchasing, but we talk about everything. Mm-hmm. Um, we talk about best demonstrated practices. We talk about construction techniques. We talk about issues that people are having problems with. So you really get this, this, this community of shared knowledge that, that, that helps you do what you do better. But in, in terms of um, other, uh, other resources, I mean, our, our trade suppliers and manufacturers are, are probably the best resource that we have because I've yet to find anyone that we work with that isn't willing to help anyone understand their product and probably as importantly, understand how to install it. Yeah. Because uh, the disconnect between the quality of the product and what ultimately goes into a customer's home is often in how it's installed. So it's not just the product performing, but it's all about the, you know, the installation. So, you know, e- even though we, we are very much removed from the day-to-day construction activities, that's what excites a lot of the folks on our team. I mean, we really... We're kind of in the role of the custom builder when we're in front of our builder groups because they expect us to know about the products that that we have partnered with. Right. And uh, so we we go to great lengths as an organization to understand all of those all of those various elements. And then you know you got to put you got to put them into play. But trade shows are another great uh, great venue for that. To me, a trade show is just like. You know, it's just like going to college. You're going to get out of it what you put into it. Yeah. If you're if you're going to a trade show to to go out to dinner and and play and hang out with your friends, but, you know that's great. That's what you'll get out of it. But there is so much information to be gained there from the source, the people that are actually manufacturing it. And uh, you know, think about what you all do on the building science front at the International Builder Show. I mean, you know, there's no surprise why those things are so well attended. There's nobody that walks away from that that doesn't learn doesn't something. Doesn't learn something. I, yeah. I don't care how good they are at what they do. <clears throat> Everybody right. learns something uh, something from that. So, and the content that spins off uh, from that. I mean, I, I know Mark LaLiberté very well. And, you know, I've always had a lot of respect for uh, for what he does and whole construction instruction program. I've been to his facility, haven't been to the new one, but I was, I was in the, in the last one. And it's like, you know, for those of us that really love this industry and love what we do, you know, like I, he had to kick me out. I I wasn't ready to go. I just went like asking questions. A lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's taking, it's taking the, the, the work of building to its, its highest level of expertise. And, you know, that's, that's uh, that. That's very difficult to pull off in the field, but yeah. it's got to start with with uh, leadership from each one of the companies that is is running a building operation. They've got to believe it, and then they can get their team to believe it. You know, I just want to go back to something you said and emphasize a little bit. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned installation, and so we have a model 
So we fully agree. And that's why I know at the IBS show, and that's why in our booth, we had demos and on this education hub where we're so much focus on application where you, you know, find animations and videos, but the model we like to think about is um, if you're going to have a problem, uh, you know, we find about a third of the, say 30% of the time, the product is due to a product failure. It just wasn't, you know, the product wasn't quality enough and it failed. Um, about 20% of the time, we think it's due to poor details. So you, you follow the details, but the details just didn't make sense or, or didn't work. But half the time, at least, and I, I know some folks argue it's probably even higher and it probably is, but it's installation. So you used a good product, you had the right details, but man, it just didn't get installed properly. And so it <clears throat> doesn't matter. It's going to, it's going to result in the problem. So yeah, fully aligned with you on the, uh, the criticality of proper installation. Yeah. I mean, I think about like, the, uh, the building envelope and um, in the area where where my custom company still builds, it's uh, it's outside of DC. There's a lot of wind and a lot of wind driven rain. It's not like on the coast, but you know, you'll get 50 mile an hour winds pretty regularly. And you know, we learned very quickly that poor installation of uh, any weatherization system is going to cause problems, particularly with windows. So right. I mean, like with our installation details this is this is before all the videos were out there i mean we had like a cut and paste thing of how we wanted our windows installed we budgeted 65 dollars a window to hmm. have it installed when you added in the all the flashings that had to go on there the amount of time shimming it doing it the right way but you know it's a it's a very expensive window but you know once we started down that path and we got everybody on board with it we didn't we didn't have any window leaks yeah, it just, I mean, the problem just just went away. But, you know, I, I would sit in front of a customer and they'd be asking, well, how come you're more expensive than this guy? And I'd use examples like that and say, yeah, I know it's a lot. Yeah, you got, you got 37 windows in your house and, you know, I'm, I'm budgeting 65 bucks each to, to put, them in, yeah. put them in right. We've um, we've done a lot of work trying to dissect what that's worth. <clears throat> and we've, it's thousands of dollars easily. Yep. Um, and if you look. You know, if you look at um, even the national public builders who have to claim their accrual amounts, it's in the thousands of dollars. An awful lot of that's for water on the chance there's water uh, issues. Sure. And so, um, yeah, because water water gets in. I mean, it's just there's there's all kinds of bad badness that happens because of that. You know, anybody yeah. that's doing it for any amount of time realizes that's that's such a critical part. Do you see a difference between? Um, either understanding or application of building science as it relates to custom builders or production builders, or is it, is that difference kind of immaterial there? You know, um, I mean, people, people have asked me that a lot because I've, I've been on both sides of the fence. I mean, my, my um, you know, my definition of, of quality, whether it's installation or product is adherence to specifications. So if, if you take a, product that is a lower specification product and you install it properly, it's probably going to perform fine. Yeah. If you take a better product and install it property, properly, it's going to perform better. So, you know, the, the, the production world is really more driven towards cost per square foot and, and, you know, getting those unit cost savings. And a lot of them are extremely well-built homes, but, you know, yeah. When, when, when you're dealing with a, a product that doesn't have as much tolerance for, uh, for error or what have you, it's it, it, any, any 
little malfunction or defect in installation can compound itself in, in you know, a, a host of different ways. I mean, flex wrap is probably the best example I can give. I mean, that stuff is awesome. You know, once you learn how to not get yourself wrapped up in it when you're trying to <laughs> right. put it in. Right, don't let the black is, touch the black. That's right. right. But I mean, it is, that is, you can, you can install that not perfectly and it's still going to do its job. But, yeah. you know, it's more expensive than other solutions that are out there. But and I'm looking at that. I'm saying to people, like, how could you not use that? Pretty robust. Yeah. Yeah. So, so but, you know, back, back to your question with, with custom and production, it's really, I think at a, at a high level, it's really what, what, what are the specifications that they're trying to achieve? I mean, even their tolerances for, for trim joints and, and visible spots in the drywall or, or uh, how level a, a, a concrete slab is. You know, we're going to be a little bit more forgiving than maybe you would have with a, you know, with a, a custom home. Yeah. But we had e even with um, these are these are great stats that we pulled from our Builder Twenty Club that when it's your company and you're very engaged with your customers, and we did an analysis of where our warranty dollars got spent, and it was it was like seventy five percent were PR dollars. They really weren't warranty issues. Is that right? But the customer was just not happy with it for some reason. And we could say, well, sorry, it's right. But if they weren't happy, most of those yeah. dollars that we spent were like, all right, I'm going to take To resolve care. that issue. Yeah. yeah. And it's harder to do that when you have a large scale production operation. You really need to, to, to stick to what your, what your specifications are because that, that flows downstream to the vendors, trades, and suppliers that are, uh, that are putting the work in place. So as you interact with your members or other builders across country, like, and you think about the state of the industry and how building science is applied and um, how rigorous folks are, and, you know, putting good building science practices, what are the top, what are the challenges you see either for the industry or what do you hear about most often? Um, you know, there, there, there are a couple of things and, and there, there are, there's an ebb and flow in this, just like, the market. I mean, when uh, when the market is is screaming red hot like it is now, uh, getting people to change the way they do things is not as easy as it is when everyone's looking for work. So, uh, that as happy as we all are that the market's healthy, it does uh, it does make instituting some sort of change in your process a little bit more challenging. But uh, you know, I, I mean, it, it, it's like I said before, it's probably the biggest factor that that we have to deal with is that's not how we do it around here. Yeah. This is how I did it yesterday. So this is how I'm going to do it today and tomorrow. And don't tell me about some new way to do it because my way works. Yeah. And yeah we hear that I, a lot. I, I think the uh the the forward thinking builders that that realize that they're never going to learn everything and that there's always an opportunity to improve. They're the ones that really outdistance the competition and, sure. uh, and are willing to, to, to work through some of those things. And, you know, it's interesting too, with, with CBUSA, I mean, although the, we, we knew that the best demonstrated practices sharing and whatnot was a, a core element of our group here locally when we started, it's a big deal when we, when we kind of scale that across the country, because it takes away a lot of the fear of the unknown yeah. that people have with trying something new. 
if someone in the group, and we see it all the time in our chats, you know, we have, we have messages will go out internal to each network. Hey, does anyone have experience with this? Have you installed this before? What can you say? I'll have four or five companies that will write back right away and say, yes, we did that. Here are a couple of things to watch out for. Here's somebody that you could go talk with that, you know, we think is a real good uh, trade that, that put it in. But it's like, you've got like your own board of directors and board of advisors to help you at least be willing to, to look at some new methodology if it's going to improve the way you do business. So, and it's cool because we never have the same answer come through. We'll have consistency in how people answer it, but there are different nuances of the <laughs> ideas. And the message for the person that's posting the question is, wow, there's, this, is, this is quite a resource. Yeah. And, you know, su super helpful. That's great. So um, before, uh, I'm going to put you to a building science quiz. I'm going to put the spotlight on you a little bit. Uh, before I do the one last question, just in general, in your experience, what's the most challenging part of the home to get right? Is it window installation? Is it framing? Is it air tightness, ventilation? Like, yeah, it's, I, I, I would, I, I would say more broadly, it's the, you know, it's the envelope. And mm -hmm. I know that covers a lot of, uh, a lot of categories, but uh, framing and, and, you know, getting the home sealed up on the outside, you know, deals with flashing, it deals with weatherization systems, it deals with, in some cases, design. Yeah. Uh, but there's so many pieces that, that tie into that. And if, and if you mess that up, you're going to have a problem and it's going to touch a lot of different categories. So, uh, you know, that's such a critical stage in the construction process when a home is under roof and you are no longer basically building outside. Yeah. So it's, it's the hardest area to do it, particularly in areas like you live in and I live in when, you know, when framers are out there doing this and it's, it's 20 degrees outside. I mean, that's, that's really hard that's tough work. work. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Great. No, good answer. Um, okay. So quiz time, let's test your building science knowledge here a little bit. So true or false windows should have all four sides flashed all four flanges uh, to prevent water infiltration. Well, the, the all sides should be flash, but the bottom flange should not be covered up. I mean, like we, we put flex wrap in the, in the window right. opening and right. then, uh, then properly shingle the, uh, the flashings that go on uh, the outside and then, then put the Tyvek back down over top of that. So yep, it, you got you know, it. I, I always tell people like, would you put your roof shingles on like upside down? Right. You know, so that water runs right down and right into the, to the building cavity. Yeah, we see that bottom flange from time to time. Folks will put flashing over it. And of course, the, the method that most of the industry subscribes to, and we certainly, our technology is built on methodology is leave that bottom flange open. So if, when water gets, not if, but when water gets back there, it has a pathway out to drain. Yeah. yeah. yeah All right. Good. You're one for one, Bill. All right. Okay. Uh, see if you get, uh, if one stud is good, five studs must be even better all packed together. Well, depends on what your objective is. If you're if you're building a tool shed and you're not worried about uh, weather or heat transfer or anything like that, then uh, sure, that's going to be fine. Structurally, it's okay. Engineered right. wood is better uh, yeah. when you're when you're doing uh, multiple gang thoroughly uh, together. But uh, I I will give full credit to to Mark for helping enlighten me on this because I was kind of fighting the the foam on the outside and, you know, all of that, you know, really digging into what he does and him demonstrating from a science standpoint, 
how how inferior kind of the old way of doing it uh, can be. Yeah, uh, it's a big you know big deal. But having that uh, that thermal break uh, from the outside and anywhere where you've got an opportunity for air to get in, it's going to come in. So um, yeah, uh, next question. And there's I'm not sure there's a wrong answer to this one. Other I'm going to give you a multiple choice, but. Um, so, and, and I've heard Mark talk about this too, as he goes around the, uh, the country, he gets different answers in different regions. Uh, but how long should a home last? Uh, 30 years till the first mortgage is paid off, at least until it's second stucco repair, um, longer than all the above, or I forgot what the question was. <laughs> What's your, uh, how long? I, I remember long the question, so we, okay. we know it's not, not D. Let, you know, it, it really should should last a lot longer than, than any of those. Yeah. But it does, it does somewhat go to the specification level. And, uh, and, and, and the, the issue that most people forget is that homes require maintenance. A properly maintained home is going to last a lot longer than an improperly maintained home, even yeah. ones that are built with, uh, with premium materials. But it, you know, it, should, it should stand the test of time for generations. Yeah. I was reading online this weekend and this past weekend, and I saw a home. They, uh, somebody had posted a picture. It was a hundred years old, and I, it shocked me because it didn't it didn't look like a hundred year old home. It was in really good shape, but it got me thinking about this question. Wow, a hundred years? Maybe it can go one fifty. You know, maybe it can go two hundred. I don't know. Yeah, part of um, part of the work that we did with my custom building company is we we were fortunate enough to be involved in a lot of high end remodeling projects. And in the area where we live, a lot of times those were on very old homes. Uh, so we had one particular project, it was an awesome project, that we put two additions onto this house that it had an addition put on it every century for four centuries. Wow. So the original middle of the house where the kitchen was dated back to the 1600s. Wow. And things had been, had been added onto it. It was just fascinating to go through that. And, and see that, you know, the progression and building materials and how things were done. Some, some of it not done well, but uh, not, nonetheless, so it goes to your question. So my answer is 400 years. 400, yeah, you're safe. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> and in Europe, they'd say, why so short? Right, right. right. Well, great. Well, that um, I think that probably brings us to the end of the podcast. Any, any final closing thoughts uh, uh, from you in, in terms of what we've talked about here today? Or well, I mean, I you know, I... You, you've heard me say it many times before. I appreciate what y'all do and your position in the market. You are education forward. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, uh, from someone that's dedicated my life to the residential construction industry, I think, you know, ultimately success comes from, from a, a shared responsibility that we have to do what we do better. And it's not about, you know, one company, you know, taking off and leaving everyone in the dust. I mean, certainly competition drives that, but, you know, I think uh, y'all's vision for what the industry should be and can be is very much in alignment with what, what we think about uh, our company and our network that, uh, that, that, that quality first sustainability and uh, pro providing as much value as we possibly can for our customers. And y'all have helped us do that in numerous ways. So greatly appreciate it. I think this, this podcast has uh, got another example of that. Great. Well, Bill Smithers, thank you so much for being with us, being our guest today, and uh, sharing your thoughts and experiences. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Alan. 
This podcast is brought to you by DuPont Performance Building Solutions, who provides the marketplace with a full suite of weatherization, thermal, and air sealing solutions, such as DuPont Tyvek wraps, flashings, and tapes, DuPont Styrofoam brand XPS rigid foam board, and Great Stuff and Frothback spray foams. DuPont knows the homes you build today will need to stand the test of time, expanding, contracting, breathing, and protecting for generations to come. Be sure to check back often for new episodes. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Alan Hubble, and residentially speaking, that's a wrap.